You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. We've been going through the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. If you're not up to date with the Moonshadow story, go back and listen to chapters 1 through 13 before listening to this episode. Before I continue, I'd like to remind you that you can find more of this sort of storytelling at apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take the time to rate and review it on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. Or tell a friend. It helps a lot. Thank you. All right, onward to the recap. Woodrow has been captured by the Grimble Prince, who is intent on recruiting the boy into his vicious army of imps. Tamberline is trussed up, and Hartford is busily repairing the damage done to the Moonshadow. With no allies nearby, Woodrow is forced to feign acquiescence to the vile prince's invitation. But perhaps escape is still possible. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moonshadow. First book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part Three The Grimble Prince. Chapter 14 Milo prodded Woodrow out onto the open deck. Grimbles swarmed everywhere. Woodrow was a head taller than the tallest Grimble, which gave the impression he was swimming in a sea of little gray monsters. When the Grimble saw Milo, they stood still, silent. Every Grimble eye fixed on the pair of human boys, every ear attentive to them. Milo raised Woodrow's hand, cudgel fists sword still in it. Your new prince! The Grimble squealed. Their cries shattered the silence and echoed off the shrouded cavern ceiling, doubling the cacophony. Or was it Necco? Perhaps another horde of Grimbles lurked in the darkness overhead, clinging to the invisible stalactites. Milo pointed at several ropes hanging down onto the deck out of the shadows above. I assume you can climb a rope. There's a passage at the roof of the cavern, one of millions in these mountains. Trains, too. That's how we travel so quickly. They stretch down below the sea, which is how we got from the Jaws to Riley Island. You'll be quite impressed. I have no idea who carved the caves or built the track, so don't ask. All I know is that Grimbles are too stupid to be responsible. But they are amazing at appropriation. You'll see firsthand soon enough. Milo stepped to the rope and turned back to Woodrow. Behind him... Woodrow thought he could see a sliver of light, perhaps daylight, from the entrance to the cave. Come, said the Grimble King. 
Woodrow looked up. He counted the knots on the rope. He got to nine before the rope disappeared into the darkness. He sighed and tucked Cudgel Fist's sword into his pants. Behind him, the Grimbles started to squeal. He turned to see Hartford emerging from the cabin, fumbling and befuddled like a man roused from sleep. At the side of the Grimbles, Hartford backed into the doorway and tapped his fingertips together in rapid succession. Woodrow opened his mouth to say something to the golem, but he felt himself yanked to the side, a cold sliver of steel at his throat. You just stay right there, golem, Milo shouted from behind Woodrow's ear. I will kill your precious little boy here if you take one step closer. Relax, Milo. He's not going... Shut up. Woodrow felt the edge of the knife dig into his neck, stinging him. Thick moisture formed in a line. He realized something. You were wrong, Milo. You have a knife to my throat. And you know what? Something still matter. Hartford! Go free, Tam-Tam! Shut up! Do you want me to kill you? Woodrow thought for a second. Honestly, I thought you would have done it already. I should warn you, though. When my great cat gets free, first thing she'll do is kill the guy with my blood on his hands. Oh, Woodrow, I really did like you. Milo's voice sounded genuinely sad. Woodrow closed his eyes and waited for the knife stroke. It never came. The blade went slack at Woodrow's throat. He ducked away, drew the sword from his pants, and spun around to face Milo. But Milo stood dumbstruck, his face illuminated in gold. The angel hovered above the moonshadow's deck, radiating glory. He sneered down at the crowd of grimbles. Filth, he said, and swooped. With one hand, the angel swept a wave of the little brutes overboard. They screamed and wailed as they fell, their cries ending abruptly in the darkness below. The angel swept an arm in the other direction, and his brilliance and glory arced out from him like a scimitar of pure light. Black blood sprayed from the crowd, and a dozen more grimbles fell dead upon the deck. The grimbles fled for cover, or else leapt overboard. A crowd of the little monsters stopped short at the door to the ship's cabin. Tamberline's feline eyes glowed in the darkness within. She pounced. The Grimbles scattered, leaving a heap of their own number screaming and writhing beneath her claws. She raised her bloody snout, a feral flame in her eyes. Woodrow pointed his sword at the Grimble King. Drop the knife, Milo. That's my guardian angel. Milo's eyes glistened. He spoke in a small voice. I thought, aren't you a bad little boy? Aren't we the same? Just drop the knife. Milo shook his head and drew his pistol. He leveled it at Woodrow. Don't do anything crazy, Milo. No, it seems I am the only sane person in the world. The only one. Milo pulled the trigger. Woodrow flinched. A second later, he looked up. 
The pistol lay on the ground, smoking. The angel held Milo by the neck. The Grimble King squirmed and clawed impotently. Woodrow heard a crack, and Milo's body went limp. The angel looked at Woodrow. He let the corpse fall to the deck. Come. He took hold of Woodrow by the wrist, beat his wings once, and they were soaring through the shadows. They emerged into muted sunlight and crisp mountain air. The angel turned his nose toward the sky. They shot upward. Hey, where are you taking me? They continued to rise to where the mountains were capped with snow. The chill stung Woodrow's skin. Are you listening to me, you stupid, murderous, feather-headed... The angel flung him away. A cold, wet snowdrift caught him. He sat up, shook white powder from his hair, and looked around. The morning sky glowed red against the peaks in the east. On the western horizon, a few stars could still be seen against a purple backdrop. The angel hung in midair, watching the sky change. Woodrow glared at him. I really hate you, you know that? Thanks for saving my life back there, but I really, really hate you. The angel paid no attention to the insult. He spoke, and there was a strange quality in his voice. I never, I never saw the heavens from below. Woodrow hugged himself, shivering. First time for everything, I guess, he muttered. It is beautiful and sad to look from below. It appears like the stars are all for your benefit. But having been above, you know how insignificant everything below truly is. Are you not sad? Woodrow looked at the snow. He thought about his father. He shook his head. Yeah, I'm real sad about the stars, because I have nothing else to be sad about. You speak of loss, of impermanence. I tasted it myself because of you. The frost sphere might have meant the death of me had you not stretched out my arm to the conduit. I guess we're even then. No, not by far. You dragged me to this lowly realm. You made me fallen. Yeah, sorry about that. It was an accident. So are you going to kill me or what? I have been thinking about that. I came out here under the heavenly bodies that have always given me strength to consider my options. I found it difficult to draw on their power to imbibe their virtue as I am accustomed. That is the curse of this fallen sphere just as the gods intended. But the stone, it also has divine virtue. I was drawn to its power for a reason, though you have defiled it with your constructs. Defiled it? My father built the moon shadow. The stone powers it. That's all there is to it. The angel's brow crinkled behind the strands of his glorious locks. And where did he get the stone? 
Woodrow shrugged. I do not expect a base creature as yourself to understand things of a holy nature. The angel went on. But suffice it to say, that stone belongs in the heavens. It blazes with the power of a god, which god I do not know, but a god to be sure. Certainly this deity seeks it out, yearns for it. And do you have any idea how badly it will go for you, should the god find you in possession of that stone? Fine, take it. Go back to the heavens where you came from and leave me alone. That would solve a lot of other problems for me anyway. Were you not paying attention? The sphere of frost prevents me from passing. You don't seem to mind the cold now. It is not the cold that prevents me. There is magic there. Cold is merely the byproduct of the magic. I don't expect a... A base creature to understand? I know. So you need my ship to fly you back up there. Is that what you decided? I'll take you right now. I think I figured out how to fly the thing. Yes, that is what I decided. But not yet. We need the other half. What? Can you not see? The stone is broken. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. Broken? Yeah, it does sort of look that way. Where is the rest of it? I do not know, but that shall be our quest. You will find redemption for your sacrilege in uniting the stone with its other half, and I will find mine when I return it to its master. Hold on. Quest? No. And for all you know, that stone could have been shattered into as many pieces as the moon. That is not likely. For a stone such as that to be broken in half is a miracle in itself. No, it is one other piece we seek. Woodrow shivered. Fine. I'll keep an eye out for it. Can you take me back to the moon shadow now? The angel observed him for a moment. And I will keep an eye on you to make sure you complete this quest. Wonderful. The angel lifted the boy. Do not think I need you. I involve you in this great task for your own benefit, for the benefit of your soul. If you say so. I mean, you still need a ride back to the heavens, right? The angel narrowed his eyes at the boy. Woodrow grinned and said, That's what I thought. On the moonshadow's deck, Hartford had already cleaned the corpses off and was now mopping up the grimble blood. Tamberline sat proudly licking gore from her claws. Woodrow wondered what had been done with Milo, but knew no one could answer him, even if he asked. I will broaden the passage to give your profane vessel a wider berth, said the angel, and flew off into the darkness. Great, thanks. Woodrow clapped his hands together. Hartford, I figured it out. I had a dream. You were in it, and my father told me what to do. Pretty much. Man your post. I'll meet you on the bridge.
He ran into the cabin, and a second later, re-emerged on the deck. On second thought, finish cleaning up out here first. The angel might need a moment. It was the better part of an hour before Woodrow and Hartford were both on the bridge. A shaft of sunlight shone through the glass and marked their direction of egress. Hartford sat in his newly repaired seat, and Woodrow pulled on the gauntlet and set the goggles on his brow. He mounted the captain's chair and pulled the goggles over his eyes. When he placed his hands over the lenses in the armrest, the ship began to hum. Veins of light coursed through the walls of the moon shadow. Images danced before Woodrow's eyes like the dust motes that appear once a curtain is pulled open. He lifted the goggles to discover he could only see the display with them on. He felt a tingling from the gauntlet on his left arm. It felt like a steady breeze. He shifted his arm a hair's distance, and the moon shadow shifted with it. Woodrow grinned. It was delicate work, backing the ship out of the cave, but once the moon shadow was in the open air, Woodrow knew exactly how to fly it. The angel landed on the stern. Get ready! Woodrow called out to him. And they were off. For the first half of the story, Cassandra had listened with knotted brow. Her eyes widened when Woodrow told of how he'd pulled the altitude lever and gone careening into the heavens. At the appearance of the angel, she leaned in, mouth slack. When Milo implicated Woodrow in the destruction of Rileytown, she audibly scoffed. And at every subsequent mention of the Grimble Prince, she muttered a curse, shaking her head in incredulity. But shortly after Milo's arrival in the story, they heard a knock at the door. That would be the noodles, Cassandra said, holding up a finger to stall the tale. To Woodrow's genuine surprise, she was right. They paused here while they ate, and Cassandra took the opportunity to provide commentary on the story so far. Still not your fault, she said, one cheek puffed with noodles. There's no way you could have known what would happen. You're not responsible for what other people do. Sure, Woodrow said, absently stirring the straw in his crongonut goblet. He wasn't very hungry. But still... I'm serious. Bad stuff just happens. It's just the way the world is, Woodrow agreed. Kind of, yeah. That's why I try to stay away from everything and everyone. Islands like this. With people. Less chance of something happening to Tam Tam or Hartford. Cassandra stopped chewing momentarily. She swallowed and set her chopsticks down. Good stuff happens too, you know, she said. I mean, you did get away from Milo. Tell me about that. Tell me about how you figured out how to fly the moon shadow. Tell me how you became friends with an angel. Woodrow frowned at the mention of the celestial being. I wouldn't call him a friend. Cassandra nodded and resumed eating. That's why I wanted to have this conversation here, actually. Save from the angel's prying ears. Woodrow looked around. A little excessive, don't you think? Is it? I've been reading up on those creatures, and it would seem they are very powerful. Yeah, I know. First hand. Have you read Morley and the Cosmonauts? The epic poem? Sure, when I was younger. It describes angels as being zealots who detest the base-born inhabitants of Earth. That's a pretty accurate description. So... 
Can your angel be trusted? Woodrow shrugged. He sank down onto one of the cushions and leaned against the table. I don't know. It depends on what you mean. Then he finished the story, told of how the angel saved him from Milo, and imposed a sacred quest upon him to unite the two halves of a divine stone. I have so many questions, Cassandra said when he finished. Yeah, me too. Woodrow gave her his sardonic half-smile, which he had begun to suspect went a long way toward charming her under most circumstances. His mood had improved considerably in the telling of the story's finale. So first, how do you fly the moon shadow? Woodrow smiled. It's pretty easy, actually. But there are three things you need to make it work. You need Hartford, generating the power to motivate the ship. I mean, I've since found that the material the moon shadow was made out of has a power of its own, to keep the lights on and such. But Hartford gives the whole thing motion, if that makes sense. Anyway. Then you need the goggles to read the light projections from the control panel, and you need the glove to activate the whole system and control it. Cassandra squinted at him. I don't understand a word of that. What I asked is, how do you fly it? That's what I'm telling you. No, you told me a bunch of nonsense. I want to know how to fly the ship. I'm getting there, but if you don't have those three things, it's not going to work. Fine, I got it. Go on. So, when you set the gauntlet over the lens on the armrest, the display lights up, provided that you're wearing the goggles and Hartford is powering the ship. You see a number indicating the altitude, a longitude and latitude grid, that kind of thing. Now you're speaking my language. All right, the lever sets your default altitude. No matter what you do, you always come back to that altitude. The pedals adjust the speed, provided... Provided you have the gauntlet in Hartford and the goggles, I get it. Well, I guess you don't technically need the goggles for that. Get on with it. Well, this is the good part. When you hold the gauntlet over the lens there on the left, you get this feeling like putting your hand in a fast-moving stream. The more you press on the accelerator pedal, the stronger the stream is. Cassandra was giving him that squint again. Look, he said, you'll have to try it but it's like your hand becomes the moon shadow. If you dip down, the moon shadow dips down. If you sort of angle your hand to the right, the moon shadow banks right. It's easy once you get the hang of it. So you're going to let me try it? Sure, Woodrow put on his half-smile. When you're ready. She rolled her eyes. I thought you said it was easy. Yeah, it is. If you're as smart as I am. Well, it's too bad I'm smarter than you then. She laughed at her own joke. He found he still liked the sound of that laugh. We should get going, he said after a while. There was no clock in the silent room, but it must have been getting late. Wait, what about the angel? What about him? Can we trust him? Woodrow looked at her while his mind sorted out all the reasons why that question was difficult to answer. It occurred to him that whether or not he could trust the angel might have no bearing on whether or not Cassandra could trust him. I think, yes, for now anyway. But what about this quest of his? Are you going to go through with that? I told him I'd keep an eye out. So far I haven't seen any magic stones lying around. That's not going to satisfy him forever. I know, but he's weird. 
Somehow he got this idea in his head that we need all this money, right? Because money is corrupt or something, and we live in this corrupted world, so the more money we have, the more powerful we are. That makes sense, doesn't it? Sure, but it's the way he talks about it. Like, it's magic or something. I mean, this is a person who absorbs power from the stars. He's never had to eat. How could he possibly understand the way the world works? That is kind of weird. Really weird. And I think that's the real reason he sticks around. Sure, he'll need my ship eventually. But why doesn't he just go do his quest thing and then come back for it? I think it's because this world down here, everything below the lunar sphere, it confuses him. He needs help navigating it. And I'm sort of the only person he knows. It's sad, really. Cassandra thought about it for a while, then gave him her own version of the half-smile. Sounds like he's part of the family, whether we like it or not. Family? You know, the Moonshadow crew. You, me, Tamberline, Hartford. And the Angel. Family. Woodrow found himself beaming at Cassandra. I see it that way too, he said. And then a nagging thought resurfaced, and his face fell. What's wrong? Cassandra asked. Nothing, he said. He wanted to ask how long she would stay with him, and what she would do when her drift was over. Instead, he said, So, what's next? She raised a mischievous eyebrow. I have a plan. What kind of a plan? The kind that makes us a lot of money. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins, original music by Mackenzie Stubbard. Please consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths.